scrolling down on the screen where the readings are listed. Our first reading is from Exodus 29, and it's about the consecration of the priests when they were in the wilderness, setting aside those who would lead God's people in worship and recognizing that God has called us into uh, holiness and worship of him. So let me read Psalm uh, Exodus 29, verses 1 through 9, and then I'll skip down. Now this is what you shall do to them to consecrate them, that they may serve me as priests. Take one bull of the herd and two rams without blemish, and unleavened bread, unleavened cakes mixed with oil, and unleavened wafers smeared with oil. You shall make them of fine wheat flour. You shall put them in one basket and bring them in the basket and bring the bull and the two rams. You shall bring Aaron and his sons to the entrance of the tent of meeting and wash them with water. Then you shall take the garments and put on Aaron the coat and the robe of the ephod and the ephod and the breast piece and gird him with the skillfully woven band of the ephod. And you shall set the turban on his head and put the holy crown on the turban. You shall take the anointing oil and pour it on his head and anoint him. Then you shall bring his sons and put coats on them. You shall gird Aaron and his sons with sashes and bind caps on them. And the priesthood shall be theirs by a statute forever. Thus you shall ordain Aaron and his sons. And skipping down to verse 35, reading verse 35 to 37. Thus you shall do to Aaron and to his sons according to all that I have commanded you. Through seven days shall you ordain them. And every day you shall offer a bull as a sin offering for atonement. Also you shall purify the altar when you make atonement for it and shall anoint it to consecrate it. Seven days you shall make atonement for the altar and consecrate it. And the altar shall be most holy. Whatever touches the altar shall become holy. And then skipping to verses 44 to 46 at the end of the chapter, I will consecrate, this is the Lord speaking, I will consecrate the tent of meeting and the altar, Aaron also and his sons, and I will consecrate to serve me as priests. I will dwell among the people of Israel, and I will be their God. And they shall know that I am the Lord their God, who brought them out of the land of Egypt, that I might dwell among them. I am the Lord their God. The word of the Lord. Thanks, Thanks be to God. We join together breaking up the scripture readings with a canticle. A canticle is a piece of scripture or traditional writings that was used as praise and prayer um, in, the, in the early church and sometimes in uh, the Jewish synagogue as well. And so the, the one that we're going to use today is called the Song of Penitence. It's from, uh, it's from the Prayer of Manasseh. And if you're in a prayer book, it's on page 81 in the Book of Common Prayer, so page 81. And we're gonna read this together as a Lenten prayer of confession um, and a song of confession, acknowledging that God is the one who forgives our sins. So let's join in the prayer of Manasseh, the song of penitence on page 81, if you're in the printed Book of Common Prayer. Together, O Lord and ruler, God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and of all their righteous offspring, you made the heavens and the earth with all their vast array. All things quake with fear at your presence. They tremble because of your power, but your merciful promise is beyond all measure. It surpasses all that our minds can fathom. O Lord, you are full of compassion, long-suffering and abounding in mercy. You hold back your hand. 
you do not punish as we deserve. In your great goodness, Lord, you have promised forgiveness to sinners, that they may repent of their sin and be saved. And now, O Lord, I bend the knee of my heart and make my appeal, sure of your grace and goodness. I have sinned, O Lord, I have sinned, and I know my wickedness only too well. Therefore, I make this prayer to you. Forgive me, Lord, forgive me. Do not let me perish in my sin, nor condemn me to the depths of the earth. For you, O Lord, are the God of those who repent. And in me will you show forth your goodness. Unworthy as I am, you will save me in accordance with your great mercy. And I will praise you without ceasing all the days of my life. For all the powers of heaven sing your praises. And yours is the glory to ages of ages. Amen. We now have our second scripture reading, which is from Matthew chapter 25. In Matthew chapter 25, verses 31 to 46. So this is the, the parable of the sheep and the goats, where Jesus is declaring uh, the final judgment to his disciples. When the Son of Man comes in his glory, and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. Before him will be gathered all the nations, and he will separate people one from another as a sh shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And he will place the sheep on his right hand, but the goats on his left. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come you, who are blessed by my father. Inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me food. I was thirsty, and you gave me drink. I was a stranger, and you welcomed me in. I was naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came to me. Then the righteous will answer him, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you, or thirsty and give you drink? And when did we see you a stranger and welcome you, or naked and clothe you? And when did we see you sick or in prison and visit you? And the king will answer them, Truly I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these my brothers, you did it to me. And then he will say to those on his left, Depart from me, you cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry, and you gave me no food. I was thirsty, and you gave me no drink. I was a stranger, and you did not welcome me. Naked, and you did not clothe me. Sick and in prison, and you did not visit me. Then they also will answer, saying, Lord, when? When did we see you hungry, or thirsty, or a stranger, or naked, or sick, or in prison, and did not minister to you? Then he will answer them, saying, Truly I say to you, as you did not do it to one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. And these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. The word of the Lord. Thanks, Thanks be to God. God. We're going to pause there for a moment and uh, take, a, take a little bit of time to reflect on what we've just read. Um, specifically thinking about that passage of the sheep and the goats. But before we do that, I just want to say, I, I'm not sure where you guys are, but this past week has been very strange. I keep using the phrase disoriented. It was a phrase we used last summer, oriented, disoriented. And the past week has been very disorienting. There's a lot of news. I'm sure you guys are watching it, reading it. And it's mostly bad news. <laughs> 
things about global health, about economic health, um, things that you were you know, reading or hearing things happening in Europe and across the US. Um, and you know, I'm just wondering if even just every time I talk to a friend, it's, it's how are you doing with the new norm, this whole social distancing, people at home, working from home, staying at home, keeping away from each other, not going out to restaurants. It's incredibly disorienting and strange, and I'm sure you guys feel the same thing. For me, this past week has been, the past 10 days in particular, has been very strange. It feels like I'm starting a new job. I, I know I've talked to people as a pastor who say, oh yeah, I've started a new job. I have to learn new systems. I feel like I'm a, I'm a rookie all over again. Well, I've been doing this pastor thing for, for a couple decades now, and the past 10 days has been the most uh, disorienting, I, disoriented I've ever felt as a pastor because I'm having to learn technology that I never used before, leaning on some of you guys who are out there in the business world who use uh, things like Zoom or uh, Google Teams, or I mean the Microsoft Teams or Google Chat all the time. I've been having to reorganize our church that we had in place uh, for almost 10 years now and reorganize us around neighborhood groups that we had slightly in place but not really fully. Um, basically set up all new systems for this new reality for the next eight, 12 weeks. We're not sure the timing of that. And what I've recognized in myself, and I saw this a little bit yesterday, is I need more space to be with God. One of the beauties of being a pastor is I often get that space in the past week has not had any space to really reflect and sit with God. And I think it's one of those things that we all need constantly, but I'm recognizing that deep need for me. Um, I think there's a helpful thing in looking at a passage like, like Matthew 25 because of some of what it calls us to and some of what it offers us as we think about where we are in this current uh, moment. So if you have your Bible, go back to Matthew 25. Otherwise, you can scroll up and you can look at it. But the, the first thing to do as we're looking at this passage is to think about what is the setting of Matthew 25. The setting of Matthew 25 is it is Holy Week from the church perspective, but in Jesus' day, it was a couple days before his crucifixion. So Jesus was with his disciples in Jerusalem, and it was maybe Tuesday or Wednesday, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday of that week that he was crucified on Friday. And Jesus knows he is going to be crucified on Friday. The disciples don't really get it yet. He leaves Jerusalem and goes with his disciples, probably not just the 12, but more like 30 or 40 of them, to the Mount of Olives, a mountain just outside of Jerusalem that looked down on the city. And as he was with them on the Mount of Olives, the disciples ask him about the kingdom. They, they know they're following Jesus because he's bringing a kingdom and they're excited that he's going to bring the kingdom. And they say, when will the kingdom come? And Jesus gives them a series of parables. And then he starts in on this one. In verse 31, it says, and when the son of man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then will he sit on his glorious throne. And the description is of Jesus coming as the king, the Lord, and the judge to establish his kingdom. And he's bringing the judgment on all creation. And then it's interesting, it's of course that very powerful phrase of dividing the sheep and the goats, that imagery that they would have understood. Of these go here and these go over there. But read the description of what qualifies as those who are the sheep, what the king in this case, or the judge calls the righteous says, then the king, starting in verse 34, then the king will say to those on his right, come you who are blessed by my father and inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. Why did they get to inherit it? It says, for I was hungry 
and you gave me food. I was thirsty and you gave me drink. I was a stranger and you welcomed me. I was naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you visited me. I was in prison and you came to me. You know, one of the things that was um, normal in that first century religious world and in kind of traditional cultures of the first century was that they did give alms, um, especially in the in the religious traditions of Jesus, the Jewish tradition. They gave alms to the poor and they actually cared for the sick. But in the first century, at least by by that time, there was also a view that the poor and the sick were poor or sick because of something wrong they had done. God had removed his mercy from them. It's why in John chapter 9, the people asked, did this man sin or did his parents? Why was he born blind? It was as if God's judgment was on the poor and the sick. So while there was almsgiving and there was care of the sick, there was also an acknowledgement that they probably did something wrong or somebody in their family did something wrong. That's why this happens. But in this passage, Jesus is pushing his disciples and anyone who would follow him to a radical mercy and generosity, not just to those who deserve mercy and generosity. And it's a radical generosity that is incredibly costly. When, when it says, I was hungry or thirsty and you gave me food or drink, I was a stranger, you invited me in, naked and you clothed me. Basically, it's, he's calling us to the sort of things that are being costly of our food, of our houses, of our own clothes, of your own health. If you're caring for the sick, you can get sick yourself. Of your time to visit somebody, to spend some time with somebody, to go visit a prisoner takes time. It is costly. But one of the worst parts about it for that first century was that to care for these people and love these people in this way, people who were the poor and the sick, the least and the undeserving, was that it was costly to your reputation. To be with these sorts of people was to be considered one of them. And Jesus says, yes, I want you to step in and be with them. And then comes one of the most beautiful things. It's the response of those who get to inherit the kingdom. Starting in verse 37, they, it says, Then the righteous will answer him, saying, Lord, when? When did we see you hungry and feed you, or thirsty and give you drink? When did we see you a stranger and welcome you, or naked and clothe you? When did we see you sick or in prison and visit you? So think about what they're doing there. Jesus has just said, hey, come enter all you who have cared for the poor and the sick. When you did this, you did this to me. And the righteous are like, well, what are you talking about? They are completely unaware. They're unself-conscious. They're clueless about their kindness and generosity. And to think about that, that means they were doing these things, whether it was caring for the poor, giving to the poor, welcoming people in, visiting prisoners. They were doing it not for recognition. They weren't looking for praise. It didn't matter if others saw that they were doing it. Nor were they doing it for reciprocity. They weren't thinking, oh, if I care for this poor person, they'll pay me back sometime. If I take care of this sick person, eventually they'll take care of me. Nor were they even looking for some sort of divine reward, like, I know this is the right sort of thing to do, and God will give good stuff to the people who do good things, so I'm going to go do good things. They are surprised that all the things they had done their whole life involved serving and caring for people, giving to people, and it was the Lord they were serving the whole time in those people. They were genuinely clueless in their generosity. I think... 
When we think about this passage, it's not overstating. It's not overstating to say that what Jesus was saying, at least in that first century culture, but I also think still today, was revolutionary. It was extremist and radical. What Jesus was saying was a radical overthrow of the patron-client economic system of that first century, all their assumptions about reciprocity and how it worked in their relational world, and everything to do with how Jesus is overturning the honor and shame relational culture of that first century. So if you lived in the first century, you would have a dinner party. But when you had a dinner party, it was always reciprocity-based. And it was, um, in other words, you had people over because by inviting people over, it brought honor to your family. And then they would invite you over, which would give them honor. And you basically shared back and forth by inviting uh, people of your same status, or if you could, higher into your home so that they would invite you and your status and honor went up. There was also a whole system, especially in the Greek world, but also in the Jewish world, of public benevolence. There were patrons in cities, especially in Greece and Rome, who gave generously in order to be recognized as patrons of the whole city or of other people. And so there were people in the Jewish uh, world that Jesus was in recognized there were patrons of synagogues, people who helped build the synagogue, rich people who gave generously and basically got their name on the outside of the building. That entire world was built on a system of generosity that, and, and kindness that was involved reciprocity and public um, recognition. So if you wanted to be generous or kind, you were always asking, um, will the person who receives my generosity and kindness be able to return it someday? Will I get back? Is it a good, you know, good investment? Or will I get recognition and credit publicly? I need to get generosity. My generosity needs to be publicly recognized. And Jesus throws that out because the righteous are the ones who have no idea that anyone even notices what they're doing and aren't doing it for the return. Jesus' message is also a radical challenge to the system of religious purity and moralistic goodness of his day and age. In the, the ancient world, in the, the ancient Jewish world, but really the ancient world, in much of traditional moralistic religious culture, it's those who obey the rules, who offer the right sacrifices in the religious system, who avoid the unclean and keep away from sin, those people are in. But Jesus is very clear, not just here, but throughout the Gospels that there are two ways we can avoid Jesus. You know, you can avoid Jesus by doing what you want, living an independent life, trying to be happy, make your own way. Basically, the way that Americans live our lives is we are the God of our own life. And that's a way to avoid Jesus. He's not my Savior and Lord. I'm in control. I'm here to make myself happy. Not, not in some rude or horrible way, just the way we live our lives, ignoring or diminishing Jesus and his claims. That's one way to avoid Jesus. But the other... The other is to try to live a morally good and religious life so that God will bless you. You can do this as a Christian, another religious tradition, or just being a moralistic good person. Like, I'm basically good, therefore good things should happen to me. Or if there is a heaven, I should get in. Jesus tosses out that entire way of thinking. When he basically says both the, the moralistic and religious and the irreligious and self-realized are ways of avoiding him. Both are ways of rejecting Jesus as Savior and Lord. And Jesus calls us in this, in this time to overthrow and toss out that religious view of the poor and the sick as those who deserve what they're getting. Jesus 
also has incredibly radical claim that's often overlooked in this passage. Most people who read it do focus on the mercy that we're called to, but sometimes they overlook the claim at the beginning. Let me read it to you again, starting in verse 31. This is Jesus talking about himself. Jesus who's calling us to a radical, radically liberal generosity to the poor and the least. He also says, when the son of man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. Before him will be gathered all the nations. And he, Jesus talking about himself, will separate people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And he will place the sheep on his right, but the goats on his left. Then the king will say to those on his right, he's talking about himself, come you who are blessed by my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. And then he does the opposite for the others, starting in verse 41. The claim is this. Jesus is claiming to be king and Lord of all. He's saying, yes, I'm calling you to loving kindness, but I'm also on around the globe. Uh, it, it reveals it reveals our need for control. Most of us have fear and anxiety that's built, like right now it's built around um, my health, my family's health, my friend's health, and money, right? Health and money. And actually our health and our money are our main sources of independence. When we have health and we have money, we can maintain control of our own lives. We can do whatever we want. And, this is, and it's Just got a message that we were losing our Wi-Fi. Are we back reconnected? All right. It's reserved everyone's kid. <laughs> so why do we tend to have fear? The, the reason we have fear is because it's stuff we can't control. Our anxieties are built around needing control of our future. And it's often built around health and finances, our future, right? Things that we want to control. And I think over the past week and a half, most of us have realized we're not really in control. For the claim of this passage, of the whole Gospel of Matthew, of Jesus himself, of the whole of Scripture, is that while we're not in control, there is one who is. Jesus is. And his claim, his own claim here, is that one day every knee will bow before him. Every tongue confess that he is Lord. The claim of scripture later on is that he will come to restore all things, to wipe away all tears. No more sickness or sorrow or suffering or pain or death. The claim of Jesus is that he is the king. Look, we may not understand God's purposes. I think there's a lot that happens in this world that may happen in our lives in the coming months that we will not understand. But God is in control. And he does love us. Our hopefulness in the midst of uncertainty will increase to the extent that we let the one who is king be the on the throne in our lives. You hear that? Our hopefulness will increase to the extent that we let Jesus in the lordship place of our lives. That's our hope. There's also a call in here. Jesus' call to us is, is to care for the poor and the sick and the least. But what's amazing about it is it is a call to an unselfconscious mercy and generosity. What I, what I called or thought about as a clueless mercy and generosity. 
It is to love the least with radical generosity to the sick and the poor and the undeserving. And we, over the coming weeks, are going to be pushed to do that. There's going to be ways we as a church, as you as individuals, can give and care generously for the poorest in our church and in our community. It's a call to love the least without getting anything in return. It's also a call to love our neighbor. And, you know, when you love your neighbor or love anyone, it's going to cost you. Right now, staying at home and social distancing actually is costing us our freedom. But we're staying at home and social distancing for the sake of others, for the sake of the most vulnerable. It's costly. I have to sacrifice. You have to sacrifice your freedom to love your neighbor. It may cost some of us our health to love our neighbor, to care for our family or friends who are sick. I think it's certainly going to cost us our money. And I'm not just talking about how in the midst of the the choices that we're having to make, the sacrifices, that many of us or many of you have lost your jobs. Some of you have just seen your portfolio go down. But I think in the coming months, it's a call to a kind of generosity that's, yes, maybe your, your income level or other things went down, but how do we continue in radical generosity to those who are struggling even more than us at each point? And I think the call in this, if I was going to say, how do we love our neighbor and love the least? Right now, start at home. Do you know that it's often easier to be kind to a stranger or somebody on the far side of the world than it is to somebody in your own home? I don't know why that is, but it's easier to be kind to a poor stranger than to your spouse or to your parents. Or if you live alone to call a friend who hasn't called you and you feel like, gosh, they've forgotten me. Let's build the muscles of clueless mercy and generosity in our homes with our friends. And let's push that out to our neighbors and the least. Where do you get the power for this sort of thing? Look, you can find the power to be kind and generous for a bit by determination, just like you started off January 1 with your New Year's resolutions. But at some point you need recognition, right? Or you need to get something back out of it. It needs to feel like it's doing something for you. Or it just becomes hard to be really generous and kind to the unthankful or to people who are jerks, right? The only way to love with unselfconscious, clueless mercy and generosity is to receive a deeper kind of radical love and assurance that doesn't come from you. And that's why we need Jesus. You know, we just read Matthew 25 and it ends in verse 46, but the very next two verses It says, when Jesus had finished all these sayings, he then turned to his disciples and said, you know that after two days, the Passover is coming and the son of man will be delivered up to be crucified. Jesus is saying the power to do these things is that I have come to die for you. Jesus came to die for our sins, to love the undeserving and the unlovely, to love those who can't pay him back. It is radical generosity and mercy towards us. And the claim of the gospel is it's not the good who are in and the bad who are out. It's the humble who are in. Those who are needy and acknowledge their need of Jesus as a savior. Jesus to die for them. It's those who acknowledge their need who receive him. So over the coming weeks, my invitation to you is not just to love your neighbor, to place your hope in Christ, but to to come to Jesus. Go to Jesus. Draw near to Jesus. You know, loneliness and solitude are different things. 
Loneliness is physically being by yourself and thinking about yourself. Solitude might be being by yourself, but it's thinking about God. And as you draw near to God in that time of being alone physically, it actually gives you greater peace and pushes you out in love. Loneliness, being alone, will draw you into yourself and anxiety and fear and anger, that spiral downward. But solitude, times of quiet, drawing near and cultivating that relationship with Jesus for the coming weeks. In that, you will find the love and assurance that you need. You are loved. Jesus died for you. The end. You will find peace because you know you are loved and have assurance. And you will have hope because while you're not in control, there is one who is, who is Lord of all. And in that, you'll find the power to love even the least, maybe even those in your own home. Let's respond to God's word by uh, going back to the Book of Common Prayer and returning in song of praise. And what we're gonna use as our song of praise is the song of Zechariah. So this is the song that uh, John the Baptist's father declared in thanks of what God had done. So if you're in the online version, you can just scroll down to the song of Zechariah. If you have the printed version, it's on page 19 in the Book of Common Prayer. So let's do this as a song of praise, and then we'll join in the Apostles' Creed. Together we say, Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel. He has come to his people and set them free. He has raised up for us a mighty Savior, born of the house of his servant David. Through his holy prophets, he promised of old that he would save us from our enemies, from the hands of all who hate us, he promised to show mercy to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant. This was the oath he swore to our father Abraham, to set us free from the hands of our enemies, free to worship him without fear, holy and righteous in his sight all the days of our life. You, my child, shall be called the prophet of the Most High, for you will go before the Lord to prepare his way to give his people knowledge of salvation by the forgiveness of their sins. In the tender compassion of our God, the dawn from on high shall break upon us to shine on those who dwell in darkness and in the shadow of death and to guide our feet into the way of peace. Join with me in the glory of Patri. Glory be to the Father and to the Son and to the Holy Spirit as it was in the beginning, is now and ever shall be world without end. Amen.